0: Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. It's summer 1922. One British broadcasting company is argued into being by a couple of dozen wireless manufacturers, represented by the big six wireless manufacturers, represented really by the two biggest wireless manufacturers, and really just championed by the one biggest wireless manufacturer, Marconi's. These 23, or six, or two, or one companies, depending on how you look at it, negotiate with each other, and then with the general post office. Anyone who's ever tried to haggle over the price of a stamp knows how difficult it is to negotiate with the post office. This time, the Wreathian principles come in, somehow, before John Wreath even gets there. That's weird. And as this new box tries to inform, educate and entertain, one of those three does not come easily. But which one? And our guest is our brand new newspaper detective, Andrew Barker, with fascinating press cuttings from 1922, all building up to the big launch of the BBC, here on the legally unrelated... British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello. This is Paul Carenza calling. This is London calling. Hello, hello. Welcome. Hope you're well. Thank you for joining with us on this uh, journey. Terrible repetition of journey there. Who writes this rubbish? I'm Paul Carenza. Hello. We are now about four or maybe five episodes away from the BBC's launch. If you'd asked me a week ago, I'd have said three episodes, but then this story just keeps on growing. We keep finding more stuff, more juicy details, including this week. Our guest is Andrew Barker. He's a listener to this podcast. He's a broadcasting history enthusiast. He's been delving into the press archives... And he's emerged with various clippings and cuttings for a fascinating insight into what the press was printing about its new baby cousin, broadcasting. And as well as what the press was saying about broadcasting, we'll also see what the broadcasters were saying about the press. It's all about, really, who has custody of the news. Yeah, so we're telling the BBC's origin story the slow way. I hope that's okay with you. I hope our pace is about correct. We like to think it's the right way. We are being fiercely chronological. I want you to get all of the connections and the backstories, and hopefully we will all come out of this knowing a bit more about why it is what it is and why it is how it is with whoever else it is. You know, the press, the government and the broadcasters, that unholy trinity is born out of these moments in the early 1920s. First, speaking of news, uh, let's have some latest from us then. You can always find our most recent updates on Twitter or Facebook, both .com slash BBCentury. Do join us there. So I mentioned last week, a few books which helped form the last few episodes, I neglected to mention The Book of All Books, The Birth of Broadcasting by Asa Briggs. Without him and that book, the last three episodes of this podcast would have been pretty quiet. And in fact, there probably wouldn't be a podcast of this In any way at all it's a massive and marvelous book also a huge nod of thanks to bbceng.info that's bbceng.info recollections of bbc engineering 1922 to 1997 it's run by the marvelous martin ellen thank you martin it's a treasure trove of a website you could lose yourself for a week in there bbceng.info thank you so much for what you have provided And while we're here, let's also mention emmatoc.org. That's E-M-M-A-T-O-C dot org. So much there on pre-BBC radio. Jim Salmon is the governor there. Thank you, Jim. A tip of the hat to you too. And while we're thanking people, thank you to those who've joined us on Patreon. Mark L, Chris T, Andrew B. We've got Dave and Jackie W, Andrew and Christine J, Mel O, Sarah and Stephen M and another Sarah M, Sarah Mack, we'll call her. I've initialized your surnames for anonymity reasons. I don't want to fall foul of GDPR, but I thank you very much indeed. If you'd like to join us on Patreon, help support the podcast. Patreon.com slash Paul Carenza is that. And since last we spoke, I've actually had some work. I've been doing some actual broadcasting on a thing called the BBC. You might have heard of it. I've been hosting Sunday Breakfast on BBC Radio Sussex and BBC Radio Surrey. You can listen again if you fancy. It was on August 23rd and 30th. And I'm also doing Pause for Thoughts on Radio 2 overnights on Sundays into Mondays with OJ Borg for the next month and back into Zoe Ball's breakfast show Pause for Thoughts after that. Finally, for this chunk of the podcast, thank you to a couple of people who have either sent or have offered to send or loan or whatever some old broadcasting books and things. Uh, Jim Lee, he's our favourite BBC newsreader, and he's got some cracking old books. Loving your work, Jim. Looking forward to hearing you on Radio 4 again very soon, I'm sure. And Stuart Henderson, poet and writer, he was having a clearer in his loft, and he found some old radio magazines. So he sent us a nice copy of Radio Pictorial magazine, the magazine for every listener this is from 1937. The lead article I've got here says, Please give the experiment a fair trial and suspend judgment meantime. What are they talking about? Well, that's the soft answer, it says, says which the BBC is sending to critics of Children's Hour Changes. Val Gilgood's determination to take the coyness out of the programmes. The children of today are the listeners of tomorrow. And the listeners of today, I would have thought, if we waited for listeners to show us the way, Captain Eckersley would still be chattering at riddle. Well, in our story this week, in August to September 1922, Captain Eckersley is still chattering away at Riddle, But changes are afoot. <laughs> so you'll remember from last time that in the summer of 1922, there's a committee of seven representatives of the wireless trade. Six from big companies, one from a small one, like the countdown numbers around... The Marconi Company sort of won the negotiations, you could argue. They get to build five new radio stations across the land. Each of the big six companies gets a directorship on the BBC board. They will run this new company together. But at that moment, there's no staff, just this board of directors. But how far they've come from when broadcasting was just wireless telephony, from the innovation at Marconi's, from the invention by Marconi. And even he, the man himself... Guglielmo Marconi wades in here in 1922, mentioning two of those three pre-Rethian values, we could say. Now, if you're not sure, those Rethian values to inform, educate, and entertain are associated generally with John Reith. But uh, John Reith isn't on the scene yet. And Guglielmo Marconi, he's sort of off the scene. He's older, he's largely yacht-bound off the Italian coast at this point. He's hands-off with broadcasting. He's done his bit, inventing wireless in the first place. But he writes this open letter to Britain's wireless enthusiasts. It is both my belief and earnest hope that these Marconi phones, his early mass-produced domestic radio set, as I was saying, that these Marconi phones, the latest popular development of the principles of my invention. Oh, come on, Marconi, you always frowned on broadcasting. You always thought it was a distraction from point to point telephony communication you get some money for. Did not. That these may provide every home in the land with a new mechanism for education and entertainment. Yeah, no informing then. Educate and entertain. But what of that elusive third Rethian value? Well, across the Atlantic at around the same time, all three are quoted by David Sarnoff. He's the head of the Radio Corporation of America. And David Sarnoff, inventor of the Sarnoff shotgun. I did that joke on an earlier episode, but Good enough for a repeat. David Sarnoff writes in June 1922, Considered from its broadest aspect, broadcasting represents a job of entertaining, informing and educating the nation and therefore should be distinctly regarded as a public service. You could almost hear John Reith saying that, although at this point, John Reith is nothing to do with broadcasting. He's just left a factory management job in Scotland. So he will come in and pick up that mantle. As for entertaining, though, well, two episodes ago, we heard of the live concerts coming from 2MT in Rittle in Essex, the first of what was now three radio stations in Britain by this point. And then last episode, live music came to 2LO in London. The British government was cautious. At first, it would only agree to an experimental service containing no music. In June of 1922, however, 2LO was permitted to radiate its first concert. Stanton Jeffries was given charge of the musical program. So now in August 22, Britain's third station, 2ZY Manchester, they get their first live broadcast concert. But Manchester's had its eye on broadcasting concerts since it started in May. The Manchester Guardian on the 16th of May 1922 has an article. Let us assume that the broadcasting station is in being and that interested householders in Manchester and the district have bought their receiving sets. What do the company then propose to do? For each day, a programme will be prepared... This programme will be announced daily, probably in the newspapers, and its transmission will be regulated according to a time schedule. For example, in the early evening, the station may be sending out stories for children, tales to send the young folk off to bed in a happy frame of mind. A little later, there may be a lecture. Music, there will almost certainly be on most nights. One of our listeners, Andrew Barker, was inspired to revive his old interest in broadcasting history. Let's say it's down to this podcast, that would be nice. But I believe also by Tim Wonders' marvellous books. Andrew's been delving into the press cuttings of the day and he's kindly sent them to us. The Manchester Guardian says... It is not extravagant to imagine a concert party or orchestra being engaged to give regular performances. Some great vocalist or instrumentalist visiting Manchester may make a flying visit to the station to broadcast his divine art. We should have thought this rather shocking at one time, but the gramophone has helped us to revise our notions of propriety in such a matter. Besides, you will be able to hear the vocalist or instrumentalist in this way without the defect of the gramophone scratch. Well, thank you, Andrew Barker, our newspaper detective, for alerting us to these clippings, and he joins us as this week's guest. Well, I think I
1: first really got interested in radio in the mid-60s. I started listening to the, uh, the offshore pirates, and my local pirate radio station was, the, it was Radio 270, which was uh, off the Yorkshire coast. so that was the first one I came across because it came through pretty pretty strongly and from there you sort of heard on was Radio Caroline North and as I was tuning through listening for these pirate stations I would come across other stations that were broadcasting in English and they were generally the communist stations so it was the things like Radio Tirana, um, Radio Prague, Radio Moscow and that's when I realized that this radio has a sort of influence and strength in that if people are actually putting out these propaganda broadcasts, you know, they obviously think that radio can have quite a big influence. And I think it's that that got me interested in the history of radio and also the radio culture.
0: All that the receiver has to do is point a little indicator on his apparatus to a number marked on the dial. This puts him in tune with the transmitter. From the 18th of May 1922 in the Manchester Guardian. When the broadcasting centres are in regular working order, it will be possible by moving this indicator to change the nature of one's entertainment. If, for instance, a children's bedtime story and a political speech are both advertised for the same hour, it will be possible first to soothe the nursery into sleep and then to switch on to the more serious performance.
1: At a very young age, because I was about 12 at that time when I was started listening to The Pirates, I actually got the first volume of Asa Briggs' history from the library. Ah, yes. Yeah, got and mine here. It's a winner. Enough, yeah. I've collected a large library of, of historical books from many of the radio pioneers.
0: Yeah, because I guess those, and those early, very early books uh, which were coming out, you get the ones from. John Reith and Arthur Burrows and Cecil Lewis, and the people who were making the radio were then writing the books about it in those early days. And, and they're, yeah, they're few and far between, I suppose, those books about broadcasting, because such, such a new, innovative thing.
1: That's right. Those first three books that you've mentioned were all published in 1924 and were the first books of their time. So you can actually, again, get the feeling as to how they performed that task of, of introducing radio, something that was, that was very new. And what the list of perceptions were. So that's how I, I got my first, first interest in radio. And then when I went to university and I, to do a maths degree, I actually used to go into the university libraries in between lectures and down into the stacks underneath, and they had all the copies of the Times. So I would be reading sort of right from 1920 through to round about 1925 or so, looking at each day's uh, articles. They got very interested in, the, uh, in radio round about 1922, 1923, and they had a daily radio column. So you could actually really follow it, follow it through there.
0: At present, no arrangements have been made for putting owners of sets in touch with the concerts and theatres. The Broadcasting Centre will have its own entertainers performing in Trafford Park.
1: I think I must have read all the listings that they, that they did through to about 1925 wow. while I was at, at university. But the one thing I, I sort of missed was... What were the programmes like? Especially before the Radio Times was published, Mm. When now it's quite accessible on BBC Genome. You can look at all the issues of the early Radio Times and all the programme schedules.
0: First experiments in broadcasting. From the Manchester Guardian, July 26th, 1922. In preparation for this enterprise, Metropolitan Vickers are carrying out a good deal of experimental work. Last Friday night, for instance, for the purpose of testing the types of receivers it is proposed to put on the market, a programme of vocal and instrumental music was sent out by means of a gramophone. The programme included songs by Caruso and excerpts from the Gilbert and Sullivan operas. Mr. J.W. Hand, one of the officials of the local branch of the Radio Scientific Society, writes to say that the signals were extraordinarily loud and clear. On a three-valve amplifier, both speech and music could be heard several feet from the telephones. In my experience, he adds, this transmission has not been excelled.
1: What I didn't get, and have only just recently been able to find, are those very early programme schedules that were, uh, that were published in, for instance, the Pall Mall Gazette. Now, with the with the benefit of being able to look at archives online, you can actually read those sort of things.
0: So this is brand new to you, then, is it? Some of the some of these clippings that, even though you were looking at this stuff so. many years ago, yeah, um, is. This, is, this is very new. It may interest students of wireless telephony in Manchester and district to know that the company will be making similar experiments about eight o'clock tomorrow evening. That's July twenty seventh, nineteen twenty two. A number of musical items will be transmitted at a wavelength of about 370 metres. The call sign for this transmission will be 2ZY. Listeners should understand that the transmissions will be essentially experimental and will not in any sense be typical of what will be sent out from the broadcasting station when it is established. No announcement has yet been made as to when Manchester may expect to have its broadcasting station. Some time ago, the firms competing for licences to broadcast prepared a scheme of control, which they submitted to the Postmaster General. By August 1922, impatience is setting in at the Postmaster General's office. The Committee of Wireless Manufacturers are taking too long hammering out this deal to create this new British broadcasting company. The Postmaster General says, Frankly, I'm disappointed at the progress they have made. All right, don't get testy. I mean, you have just said, go away and make one broadcasting company that isn't a monopoly, but is you all working together to build a thing that we don't quite know what it is yet? Oh, and have no money to do it. And can we control it, please? And can you be nice to the government on question time when you invent that, please? Oh, and we're not going to come on the Today programme because we're sulking. I may have added a few bits there.
1: As time goes on, the correspondents for newspapers seem to be getting more and more frustrated that the regular transmissions aren't really happening. So they're getting a bit frustrated with test transmissions.
0: These tests are important, for it's probable that the arrangements between the manufacturers and the postmaster general, though much delayed, will be completed before the manufacturers are in a position fully to avail themselves of them. It is hoped, however, the broadcasting will be in full swing by the autumn. 5th of August, 1922. An experiment in transmission made on Thursday evening was listened to by the representative of the Manchester Guardian. The programme consisted of gramophone records with spoken announcements. It was picked up at a receiving station seven miles from Trafford Park on an English-made valve set, both through a telephone headpiece and through an amplifier. The records included the Yeoman of the Guard, Vladimir Rosing in the Irish Famine Song, which we are not playing for legal reasons. It's rather racist. And a violent adaptation of the barcarolle from the Tales of Hoffman.
1: The Metropolitan Vickers Company announced that next week they intend to dispense with the gramophone records and transmit vocal and piano Forti music direct.
0: The voice transmitted direct from the broadcasting station and not through the medium of the gramophone was astonishingly clear. The reproduction of the voice through an ordinary telephone is a caricature in comparison. This was not Marconi's, this is Metropolitan Vickers, really seeing themselves as a way of putting a flag in the ground and going, we can do this as well, because they know that at this point, those high-level discussions are going on in the boardroom about how the British broadcasting company will come into being, how it will work.
1: But also, later on, there is another article, again saying that they're going to trial vocal music again. So I suspect that that initial trial in August wasn't very successful,
0: but that is just supposition on my part. Well, that British Broadcasting Consortium of Seven, the chairman of that changes. Goodbye, Frank Gill. He's got work overseas, but we salute Frank Gill. He's the guy who scribbled the name British Broadcasting Company on a scrap of paper, and he gave us the first reference to pirate radio. So He's done his bit. Instead, at the helm of the Wireless Manufacturers Committee, we welcome Sir William Noble, Chairman and Chief Negotiator. All of these are men for some reason, but uh, just wait six months. The new BBC will be employing more women on fairer terms than most companies do. Sir William Noble, he's the boss of General Electric, and he's negotiating with the General Post Office. In fact, he's a former Chief Engineer of the General Post Office, so that's rather handy. He will be guiding the BBC into its infancy, and he'll stay on as a director of the board. I mean, he's not a TV director. There is no TV at this point. Are you not paying attention at all? Well, let's get specific then. August the 8th, the wireless manufacturers agree to one rather than two British broadcasting companies. See last episode for details of that. But there are three conditions. Firstly, the BBC's chairman must be neutral, not loyal to any one wireless company like Marconi's, Metrovic, Western Electric and so on. Secondly, Marconi's will build and manage six of the eight stations. Well, they know what they're doing better than anybody. So Marconi's will cover London and five new stations from Bournemouth to Aberdeen. Thirdly, to help the other two stations, that's Manchester and Birmingham, Marconi's must share their patents. Fine, say Marconi's, but you will pay. And thus, the BBC has a plan. August 10th then, and that's two days after that agreement, Manchester broadcasts a Manchester radio concert. This evening at seven o'clock, the Metropolitan Vickers Electrical Company will broadcast music from their works at Trafford Park. The concert will close at 8pm to avoid overlapping with the programme from The Hague. The power used will be small, about 3% of the power which will normally be used later, and crystal sets in consequence will only hear within a limited range of one or two miles.
1: Rather more with a valve set. There was still, of course, broadcasting on, on very low power, so there was actually probably very few people able to listen in those very early transmissions. But then, come early November, they're increasing the power and uh, make the station available to, uh, to rather more people.
0: Yeah, I guess in those early uh, articles there are uh, being read by far more people than, you can, than, than those who can actually access radio uh, at that point. So really the newspapers are advertising broadcasting, giving it a boost, I suppose, and publicising it to people who can't yet get it. But they are part of its birth story in that sense, I suppose, before they start going, actually, are we promoting this rival too much?
1: Yes, initially um, they realise that the public are interested in radio and are quite happy to to effectively promote radio because they know that that people are interested in it. The Manchester Guardian
0: on the 12th of August 1922. It is obvious that broadcasting on a big scale cannot come into operation in a day or two, but London seems likely to have the beginnings of a service within two or three weeks. Tried two or three months. When broadcasting will begin in Manchester, it is impossible to say definitely, but it is not likely to be long behind London. Yeah, one day later. And the autumn should see the system in operation. So William Noble hands a draft agreement to the General Post Office by mid-August. And he says, look, we can start right away. Let's get going. But no, 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 says the GPO. October at the earliest. The post office were the ones impatient with the wireless manufacturers dawdling. But now it's the post office who are dragging their heels. And that's really down to that other Wreathian value to inform. It's a big question that resonates today. Can the BBC get along with the printed press? The question of how and if the Beeb should broadcast news is a biggie. This from the Manchester Guardian. The precise rights of radio telephony over transmitting news, the results of football matches, races and the like, have still to be settled by the Postmaster General. But he has provisionally placed an embargo on the transmission of such news. So, before the company can Britishly broadcast, the Post Office want to meet the press. I know! Why would they want to do that? The merry dance between government, broadcaster, and newspapers, it danceth on. Well, it sounds like danceth on, the non stop charity boogie for children in need. No, it danceth on. Later on, as the BBC is formed and is, is broadcasting,
1: the newspaper proprietors are very worried about listeners abandoning their newspapers and instead listening to news broadcasts on the radio. And that is why they made the decision later on to uh, uh, the news proprietors to stop publishing the listings. But it was very quickly found that the newspaper listings actually increased the sales of newspapers at that
0: time. While broadcast music arrives in Manchester, it continues in London. We heard last week how 2 Arthur Burroughs brought music to his radio demonstrations that summer. It bags him thousands of letters of appreciation and charitable gifts. And those concerts continue through August and September 22, and other radio entertainments join them. In late September, we get perhaps the first short stories on British radio. A journalist called Pet Ridge asked Tuolo if he could read his Little Tales, a feature from his Daily News column. It's like the bedtime stories in American radio at that point. He mentions the newspaper it's in before and after each broadcast. A little commercialism then, sell a few papers. So the press are using the broadcasters, the broadcasters are using the press, and the big bosses are still trying to hammer out a deal as to how radio can broadcast news. Before they even start then, the Biebs' hands are tied in terms of informing. Educate and entertain, by all means. But inform the public, best leave that to the news-gathering newspapers. The clues in the name. Time for some FM, some first hand memories from you. You can email them to me, Paul at PaulCarenza.com. This is when you witnessed radio happening first hand. Songs of Praise producer Mark Warburton. Hello, Mark. He says, Age 17, I saw Radio 4's PM go out live from the studio. Valerie Singleton was one of the presenters. My overriding memory is of someone, probably the producer, panicking at about two minutes to five, shouting, Where the (coughs) f*** is Valerie? Yeah, nice. Also around the same time, seeing a Radio 1 DJ in action and realising that he was, at least in part, reading from a script. It had never occurred to me, says Mark. And shock, they actually got up and walked around, had a drink, went to the loo and so on, while records were playing. How rude. No respect for the music. We've also heard from another Songs of Praise producer. Any Songs of Praise producers left who want to get in touch, or indeed non-Songs of Praise producers, you're welcome to drop us a line. David Waters of Songs of Praise says that he was fortunate enough to film Reverend Richard Coles, the second or third best pause for thoughter. he says, I thank you, David, in Radio 2's Friday breakfast show. Chris Evans was amazing to watch. You could feel the energy coming off him. Never missed a beat. Also, David remembers fondly the radio drama studio in old BBC Manchester, with Stairs to Nowhere decked in three different floorings, or for sound effects purposes, of course. That reminds me of Maida Vale. I was there once for a Radio 2 pause for thought for the breakfast show. And there was this spiral corridor at Maida Vale that you could run down, and it's meant to sound like you're falling off a cliff. But because it goes in a spiral sort of in on itself, there's a dead end at the end, so you have to stop running before you hit that wall. So I did my pause for thought, and then Chris Evans, he made me go and scream and run down this spiral corridor into nothingness. And I think it sounded great. And then Dame Emma Thompson, of all people, who was a guest, she did it straight after me, and before she collided into me. One of the weirder moments. So back to the story. The press and broadcaster tussle actually delays the launch date of the BBC, which the Postmaster General originally thought could be the 1st of October 1922. Although if you're waiting for the press and broadcasters to stop tussling, you'll be waiting for some centuries yet. October the 18th, as we'll see on a future episode, is the day the British Broadcasting Company will actually form. And the official agreement that day states that this new BBC would provide news, information, concerts, lectures, educational matter, speeches, weather reports, theatrical entertainment and any other matter. Yes, so news will be in the official wording then. They just don't want the BBC to gather it or report anything before the newspapers do. The top negotiator at the post office, F.J. Brown, he states that the BBC is to educate, inform and entertain the British public, but with no news gathering, advertising or controversial content to be originated by the company. So maybe you can broadcast controversial content. Where the f*** is Valerie? It's not originated by the company? It's not entirely clear. So the BBC then can inform, but not gather, news the Press Association make it very clear to the Post Office in 1922 that their view is that these Johnny-come-lately broadcasters should not be even allowed to read news that has been published, let alone news that hasn't. They, of course, had their evening papers to protect. Here's broadcasting historian Tim Wonder. The newspapers are terrified because why would you go down to walk out in the rain to buy a newspaper where you can hear the news five times a day? October 26, 1922, though, all becomes at least settled enough for the British Broadcasting Company to start. It's the final hurdle, pretty much, before the BBC can begin. So at this point, the General Post Office arranges a meeting with what's then called the Broadcasting Committee. The Wireless Committee has changed name at this point. That's William Noble, Godfrey Isaacs, Basil Binion, and so on, those big early directors of the new BBC. Also there, of course, the Newspaper Proprietors Association. They look after the national newspapers. And the Newspaper Society, they cover the provincial newspapers. It's a rather tense meeting, but it becomes clear it's just a numbers game. The printed press don't want to be out of pocket because of the broadcasters. Godfrey Isaacs of Marconis gives a very strong viewpoint that any news that's out there is surely fair game, sports results and so on. The BBC can report what it likes if it's general information. and He has to be talked down by his own side who insist that, no, no, the BBC will have no ambition to gather news. Don't worry about it. Ultimately, it's early November when the agreement is finally made that the BBC can broadcast news without treading on any toes if Reuters, the Press Association, Exchange Telegraph and Central News provide 1,200 to 2,400 words of news each day for a fee. £333, six shillings and eight pence per month. And they want a credit as well. So each bulletin on the BBC will start with a copyright notice, attributing it to Reuters and so on. The news was broadcast twice a
1: day, 6pm and 9pm. But that very quickly was changed to 7pm and 9pm because the newspaper proprietors were worried that the sales of evening newspapers would fall off if people could get their radio
0: news as early as 6pm. So, informing can legally now join educating and entertaining as the backbone of the beeb. Just maybe it should all be the other way round. Entertaining seems to come first and informing certainly arrives last. Next time, this top-level negotiation is all very well, but is anyone actually going to buy one of these newfangled radio sets? So we'll be in October 1922 for the first British wireless exhibition selling radios to the people. And that'll feature the first royal broadcast and the first outside broadcast. Hang on, didn't we end last episode saying we'd do that this time? Oh, yes, we did. Well, then Andrew Barker came along and sent us those press clippings and, well, if you're getting impatient for the broadcasting that was promised to you... Imagine how they felt back in 1922. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza, with original music by Will Farmer. Archive clips are either public domain or someone's domain, but we're not quite sure who. If they're yours and you want us to take those clips down, we gladly will. They're just here to inform and educate and entertain. Do subscribe, rate, review by all means, and join us next time on the British Broadcasting Century.